Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is Wednesday, September 22nd. We have another interview today. Today we have Mitch and Jake from the Money Under the Mattress podcast. Two young Canadian lads as well. We are talking before recording. You guys are from New Brunswick. So thanks for coming out from the East Coast. Do you guys want to just introduce yourselves? And then perhaps after each of you introduce yourself, give the lowdown on what a pivotal moment was when you started down the, the finance rabbit hole and managing money for yourself. Mitch, do you want to start with you? Yeah, well, I just want to thank you for having Jake and I on. Definitely an honor. We've been longtime listeners of the Canadian Investors Podcast, so we really appreciate it. But yeah, so my name is Mitchell. I'm a part host or co-host of Money Under the Mattress Podcast. I've started investing when I was about 13 or 14 years old. I started off in some mutual funds just under my father's name. And then as soon as college happened, then I started getting interested more in the stock market and picking stocks and having a more like Warren Buffett style approach to investing. So I started reading up more on him. And then I guess technically here we are and Jake and I now have a podcast. And I mean, we were friends throughout high school, went to the same high school, and then we went to the same college. And now we're here with the investing podcast. Nice. So you guys are lifelong buddies and then now doing this podcast together. That's cool. Jake, how about you? Yeah. So I'd also like to thank you for having us on, Braden. So I think I started investing about five years ago. Back then I invested in mutual funds as well. And then about two and a half years ago, around the same time as Mitch, we started picking our own stocks, you know, reading up Joel Greenblatt, Warren Buffett, a couple other super investors, started getting into it. Around that time too, we met a buddy at our school. He was a big options trader. He was doing pretty well at the time. He tried to explain to Mitch and I how the options side of things worked and kind of a strategy. And it was kind of went over our heads because we had just started learning about value investing and stuff. And we kind of were more attracted to that side of things rather than the option side of things. He went on to do pretty well during the pandemic with all the volatility. We did not bad ourselves with the value investing side of things. But yeah, it was, it was pretty interesting there uh, a couple of years back during school, learn about options, but also learn about the value investing side of things. Nice. So this buddy, he came to you with the classic trading mentality. What is your first reaction to, I'm a young guy myself, a little bit older than you guys, but this is really common, right? You see this quite a bit is, hey, I've been messing around in the stock market. I've been trading options or I've been day trading stocks. And I think a lot of people got into it. You know, The amount of discount brokerage accounts that were opened in 2020 was mind bending. So, you know, the wealth simples and the quest trades, they all benefited from that. But at the end of the day, I mean, it is a good thing. What do you say to those folks who are trying to go down the day trading route and how do you walk them back to, hey, it can be much more simple than that. And the more simple than that version of this is actually a lot more profitable and can be, you know, repeatable and proven. So what is your quick reaction to that, Jake? Yeah, it's hard, right? Because I mean, the first guy that we met that was doing that actually does pretty well at it. And we were kind of shocked at it. But for most people, I'd say definitely don't try that. 
you are going to try that, you know, maybe just set aside some play money. But I definitely try to pick another strategy, whether it be value investing or index funds, just something more long-term, more of a right. proven strategy. Yeah. And that's a good answer. It's not that you can't make money doing those strategies. It's just that these are complex instruments and not what you should be doing the first second you open a brokerage account. Yet, if you look at option volume and the amount of accounts trading options within like the first month of them being open, the results are quite staggering. So I guess it's just know what you're getting into. And yeah, I think that that's well put. All right. So let's start a conversation on your investing styles. How would you concisely define them to someone in just a few sentences? How about you, Mitch? In a few sentences, me and Jake have talked about this in the past. It's hard to condense everything into a few sentences, obviously, but we would say is that we take the top investors that we do like, and we take their strategies or their best aspects, and we try to put them into, I guess, a combination and make mm-hmm. it kind of our own type of style of investing. So our style technically is started off as value investing, but at the same time, not every investment that we have made is a value investment. We're always considering price on almost every investment that we have made, but we're also looking at the actual growth opportunities as well as the actual fundamentals of the business. And it's not just a sitting rock, I guess, to put mm-hmm. it into a metaphor that you're just hoping that it goes up. Nice. So you're looking at a lot of 13Fs with these super investors, I would assume. Yeah. That's when we started off investing. We looked at a lot of 13Fs, took a lot of, I guess, inspiration from guys like Monish Pabrai, Lee Lu, obviously Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, and the likes of those guys, and then kind of put it into our own style. And now we're just kind of looking at great businesses, putting them on a checklist, and then just watching those, or I guess a watch list, and then just watching those and waiting for a reasonable price. Fair enough. How about you, Jake? Yeah, I say I'm pretty similar because I mean, Mitch do a lot of talking together about investments, but I'd like to add maybe that I wouldn't say we're complete cloners of the 13 Fs. We kind of like mm-hmm. to clone the ideas behind like the why right. more. That's the correct way to use them. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. And we will comb through 13 Fs every time it comes out there. And then we'll pick the ones that kind of make sense to us. And then we'll do some more research into before investing in it. We won't, we don't just like blind copy it. I also like looking at companies that have been successful in the past. And then if I see a company that's starting out, it's kind of cloning the, the way they run it and it's in the same industry. I'll also look into that. Something like currently I'm kind of looking at a home builder called DreamFinders Homes and it uses option contracts to buy lots of land. The CEO kind of cloning NVR, the way that home builder did things. So I kind of look for copycats in a way. Mm-hmm. Some of these companies are, are following in the footsteps of, of others. You know, how many of these roll-up strategies are now the Berkshire of something, right? The Berkshire of tech, the Berkshire of insert industry X. And I mean, as cheesy and as it may seem, it, it works, right? Like, like a lot of these, these strategies do work. So Simon and I have been hosting this podcast, as you know, for like over a hundred episodes. We have a somewhat similar investing strategy in the grain scheme of things. You know, we compare notes. I've learned so much from him and and he's learned from some of my ideas. Yet we often and and very do, and this is very healthy, come to different conclusions, you know, quite often. Both can be correct, which is great and that's perfectly normal. But as podcast show hosts yourselves and you know buddies, you guys have been friends for a long time. What do you not see eye to eye on, you know, a particular stock or a certain strategy? Maybe you guys just agree on everything, but where would you say it differs a little bit, Mitch? 
me and Jake are smiling at each other right and now. I, I, yeah, you guys are grinning <laughs> ear to ear right now. Sounds like there might be one that's a hot take. Yeah, so, I mean, right now, we're pretty well in the same boat on most things for most of our investments. Is there anything that we're not in together, Jake? I'm in yeah. alimentation, you're not. Yeah, true. Alimentation, Kush Tart. Oh, so yeah, Kush like, like, yeah, yeah. ATV, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's not like a bad company at all or anything like that. It's just that I don't know if I got in. Jake got in at a better price than I would have right now. So, And I have been in them in the past. But no, there's there's a few companies that I've gotten into that Jake has not gotten on to. And then there's a few companies that Jake's gotten into I haven't. And usually what it will happen is a year passes and then we both have the same realization of, oh, I should have gotten into it or I should not have gotten into mm-hmm. it. So yeah, I mean, we haven't directly got into too many conflict with saying like, okay, this is a great business that is going over like the metaphor of like the like home plate. But no, what would you say, Jake? Like, there's not many businesses that you're looking at that I'm like, oh, no. And then I'm like, I tell you my thesis on it. And then you're like, no, I still think it's a really good business. When we first started out, you were really obsessed with the price to book ratio. Mm-hmm. And like, I kind of like kept saying like, no, like that's not like we're, what we're trying to do here. And then I was also kind of, you kind of got me into the whole net side of things. And then I grew out of that. And it was just like, at the start, I found we like disagreed a lot more than we do now. I feel like now we're kind of on the same track, but I'll shoot some investment ideas at Mitch and he'll knock me down. And uh, I think that's really good. <laughs> Yeah, you guys have your own little committee. So that's cool. No, that's good, man. It's good to have people to bounce these ideas off of that you at least know in person too. And I think that when it comes to money, money is such a taboo topic for some strange reason. I've never understood that. No. You know, as obviously as a podcast host, I've never really thought it was, you know, difficult to talk about. But a lot of people do. So a lot of people who might listen to this podcast might even listen to your podcast don't talk about money or investing to anyone that they know in real life. So that's nice that you do have that, but it's also nice that you know these podcasts do exist. So I think we live in a golden age of information. So you guys are based out of the East Coast. Are there some Canadian co's? I know we just talked about Couchetard that excite you, you know, at this current level. And I don't mean like, yeah, like I own them, but you think even if you weren't in Canada, that you would pitch to a US investor investor, say it's like Canadian only listed. Something here that you think is really exciting and interesting out of Canada. Jake and I are both in this. It's a company that we've owned for a little while now. It's called Equitable Bank, EQ Bank. EQ you, Bank. Might see, yep. you might have seen like a lot of ads on them. Like if you watch like YouTube or anything like that, like they're always I, I've I've owned shares for years, by the way. Yeah. I think that's how we we kind of met it. Like we talked about EQ Bank at the start a little bit. But yeah, Equitable Group or EQ Bank. EQB. We've owned that for a little bit over a year now, Jake, would you say? I was a little longer. It was during the yeah. pandemic that I, I bought originally, but I kept adding along the whole way there. Yeah. And we just think that they have a strong competitive advantage over the big six, just based on like the interest rates that they're giving, as well as the access is very accessible, user-friendly base. So that would be like the one Canadian stock that I would pitch to a US investor. What about you, Jake? So I work for one of the big six banks. And I kind of have like an insight into how like things kind of work there. I'm not like saying I'm an expert or anything on it, but I kind of see how annoyed some of the customers can be over certain things. And then I mm-hmm. look at something like an EQ bank. I think it's an awesome bank. There's no brick and mortar. You, you, so you guys like the product. Love the product. I like the management. 
and I just see it going more that way in the future. So they have a pretty just big completely step up digital. Right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like when's the last time you stepped in a branch? Only when shit goes south, you got to go. Exactly. There, right? Yeah. I'm guessing you're familiar with Peter Lynch. Of course. We had a Peter Lynch style to it. So like nice. if you read the book, One Up on Wall Street, when he talks about how his wife, I believe, was the one that found legs, like was like the lagging company or pant company. I forget exactly what it was. And it was a very similar approach that me and Jake both loved EQ Bank. And then one day Jake said like, I wonder if they have a stock. We looked more into it. It happened to be public. And we said, like, this is selling cheaper than all the big six banks right now. It still is to this day, I believe, on a PE ratio, I guess. And we just liked that they had like strong growth potentials and mm. just the growth in deposits has been exceptional. Yeah. It really, especially the, the digital deposits, 100%. Mm-hmm. I kind of fluked my way into owning the stock. I think I was telling you, Mitch, my cost basis on it is like 34 bucks or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, I am not a special situations investor at all. I've invested in one special situation and it's the EQ Bank. If you guys are familiar, I think it was 2017, I would have entered it. Home Capital Group got the lifeline from Warren Buffett. You know, mm-hmm. there was all kinds of issues. Stock fell 50, 55% in, you know, the matter of a week. And so did their biggest competitor, EQB. And this was at the time where EQB was a very similar business, a non-prime lender, very attached to the Canadian real estate market. And they're building this digital bank kind of on the side. So I figured there's no way their biggest competitor who is completely not affected by this whatsoever should be trading 55% lower in the, in the matter of a week. It was a hell of a trade, but I mean, I just kind of fluked into my way into that. And this goes down to, you know, there was this narrative developing about the the digital bank, this is actually a pretty good business. I hardly knew anything about the business when I bought it. I got to be honest with you. But it goes down to that, like, why sell it? I mean, don't sell things you just don't have to. Let them compound. So I haven't bought another share since. And I mean, it's check what the stock does is that today. I mean, it's been an incredible performer. So I'm glad you brought that one up. And I mean, what is it like $3 billion in market cap? Less than it's that? It's two something. It's two yeah, something right something. now. I think it has some room to run for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there's little opportunities that come up that, I mean, you just go for it. So, okay. Glad you brought that one up. All right. So you guys are smart for doing the podcast. You know, I obviously think podcasts are amazing and you guys are learning from smart people because your podcast is primarily like an interview style, correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah. We kind of bring on guys that are a lot smarter than us. So we get to sit down and talk to people. I guess the brilliance of Twitter pretty well for an hour. And then we get to post it and have the nice the likes of other people want to listen. So you guys are like hyperscaling your knowledge, you know, just being a sponge. I think that's smart. What was the best piece of advice or perhaps investing wisdom given to you from this experience on, you know, all the guests that have come across and, and if you can't narrow it down to one, maybe two, we'll, we'll start with you, Jake. I wouldn't say it's particular advice having all these different people on and seeing how each single one of them kind of has their own expertise in different industries was really cool. And it kind of got me into the realization that maybe stick to one or two industries and not try to go into a bunch of different ones. So it was kind of like, I heard a lot of great things from a lot of great people on our podcast, but I kind of took away from those podcasts was that stick to the industries you understand because 
hearing how they did in certain industries and the ones that they knew the best was the best they actually did performance wise. So I think that's what I kind of took away from, from the whole experience so far. Right. So kind of just staying in your lane, not casting as, as wide of a net before we go to you, Mitch, what is your stance on, say you're not an expert in cloud computing? Are you then trying to learn as much as you can behind the scenes before you can really think of any of them as investable ideas? Like, how are you thinking about something like that? I probably wouldn't invest in a cloud company that just does cloud. If it was like something like an Amazon where it had cloud and e-commerce and other types of businesses, I would I would invest in something like that if I understood the other types of businesses. Or like an Alibaba where they have e-commerce along with the cloud side of things. But just a company that does straight cloud, I probably wouldn't invest because my circle of competence around cloud is not as good as it could be. Okay, fair enough. So like with Amazon, for instance, you're getting this like probably deeply discounted cloud business with mm-hmm. buying Amazon and, and having kind of a call option on the cloud by owning exactly. Amazon. That's that's the way I think about AWS anyways. And you know, you rip that thing apart into a separate entity and it's worth a trillion bucks in a few years. We're like it doesn't take much to get there in terms of valuation. How about you, Mitch? How are you thinking about this and what was the potentially best piece of advice or wisdom that you've got from interviewing all these smart people? Yeah, I mean we've had some extremely smart people come on that have given us a lot of advice. So it's pretty hard to narrow down to like the best piece of advice, but I find, yeah, like to just kind of bounce off Jake's ideas that like you learn very quickly. What is your circle of competence when you're trying to interview somebody? So like we'll have somebody come on. We've had guys talking about the tobacco industry all the way to like a person that worked for a, a big tech company and talks all about cloud and AWS. So like, trying to like prepare questions and understand a business or an industry a couple of days in advance, then you'll understand like very quickly, like whether or not that is your circle of competence. And if it's something that's even like an interest to you. So I found that's been very helpful and yeah, definitely to narrow down on only a few industries. And that's all you really need to know. Like a guy like Francisco Oliveira, if you're familiar with him, he just looks at media businesses. That's all he looks at. And he's done very well for mm. himself. I've learned from that is I don't need to know financials. I don't need to know financials. And then like another couple industries, if I just wanted to learn just financials, that's totally fine. And there's a lot of pitches that can come by that I don't need to swing at that are full industries. I just got to wait for just, just a one good business that I definitely understand. That's kind of been like the most helpful thing that I've kind of learned. And then just like DMing back and forth between different individuals that we've had on the podcast has been very helpful. But yeah, it's definitely pretty hard to like narrow down to like one specific piece of advice other than just a couple of guys have said, stick to six or seven businesses that you really enjoy and has a long history, learn from them and see what, what other businesses are cloning from those six or seven top businesses. Okay. Yeah. So there's a similar theme that's sticking out and potentially it's from a similar theme of the guys that have been on the podcast so far is stick to a more narrow search for great businesses. And don't worry about the ones you might miss. I could probably uh, learn something about that, but I, I think it's just my personality to be just infinitely curious about other industries. So, and you know, again, that brings up another point, right? Is that's what I'm comfortable with, and it sounds like versus what you guys are comfortable with, and that's really what's important here is that you're going to have the best results if you execute the strategy that works for you. Yeah. Even if you guys are like, you know, me and you are invested in completely different companies, we can both absolutely 
crush the index on a long-term performance basis by investing in the thing that makes sense to you and the one that you're actually going to be able to repeat. Because repeatability is everything when it comes to long-term success. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's hit the drawing board with some high conviction ideas. We'll start with you, Mitch. I'll throw one out there that I've done quite a bit of research on and I've done a write-up on. It's Boston Omaha Corporation. Definitely been exciting today, especially. It's up, what is it, like 17%, Jake? Yeah. <laughs> it's up 17% today. Up 17% it's up like today. 20 something last couple of days. Wow. Yeah. So it's not, okay. it's, I'm not sure exactly. I'm, I'm guessing just a big fund is starting to kind of maybe possibly get into them. Um, Pitch me like a five year old because I don't know the name at all, by the way. Perfect. Okay. So hypothetically, if you're five, you might know Warren Buffett. Um, mm-hmm. So Warren Buffett's grand nephew is actually a co CEO of this company, uh, oh. Alex Rosak. So that kind of piqued our interest immediately. They're called Boston Omaha Corporation, hence the name. One of them's from Boston, the other one's from Omaha. And actually, Warren Buffett's grandnephew is the one from Boston, actually. Um, <laughs> That's ironic. Yeah. And so they're very similar to a Berkshire. I call them the, the younger Berkshire on my Substack. They own a few businesses. One of them's a big advertising, um, so billboard. There's static billboard, and then there's also dynamic billboard, I believe they're called, the moving ones. Yeah. So they own that. They partially own a company called DFH that Jake's already talked about, which is a home builder, which they use option contracts to use home building. So if anybody's familiar with something like that would be, what's the home builder? Sorry, that used option contracts, Jake? NVR. I was going to pitch that after. Dreamfinder's home after that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So they partially, they own, is it 10% stake, Jake? I'm not sure if it's 10% exactly, but it's about 110 million or so. Yeah. They own quite a bit of, of DFH, which uses option contracts just for for the actual home building. It's a conglomerate, small Berkshire type of holding company, even some family ties. What's the growth profile looked like so far on like just top line? I'm not actually sure like the full numbers on that. Right now they're in very early growth stages. So they just turned profitable as of last like couple of quarters. They're growing the top line. Yes. Well, it's okay. it's not as like easy as like it having one like reportable segment. Like it has some like operating businesses, and then it also has like a decent sized stake in Dreamfinders Homes, and it has a couple of other investments like that. But they got hit half decently hard during COVID because not a lot of people were paying for advertisement and stuff, and they were kind of budgeting down there. Going forward, people weren't driving, so like they're not going to see billboards. <laughs> exactly, yeah. and then They're the surety also, bonds that they also want to. A surety insurance business, sorry to cut you off there, Jake. They own a surety yeah. insurance business. So in other words, what surety is, is insurance for contractors. So they don't default on like, if you're halfway through building, let's say if you're rebuilding a, a roof, then the contractor can't just leave halfway through and then you have half a roof. That, so that's exactly what surety insurance is. So it's, you get money either way, technically speaking, because they pay a premium as well as if they have to take the loan out for the actual surety, the contractor needs the money if they do default then they'll have to pay back that actual surety loan. Got it. Jake, how about you? You got a home builder for us? Yeah, I got Dreamfinders Homes. I got a really small position so far. It's kind of just a starter. And I'm still kind of in the midst of doing research. But basically what it is, is back in 08, the CEO, Patrick Zabulski, I think I might have butchered his name there. But what happened was back in 08, he kind of got caught in that crisis there, the financial crisis. And he was thinking to himself like, I want to find a way so I don't get killed on something like this again. So he studied NVR, which is a pretty uh, big home builder in the States there that uses option contracts for the land. And basically he studied that business and kind of copycatted it. 
And then they started off with like one house and then kind of built its way up and Dreamfinders Homes. And now they're doing, they did about billion, I believe, or so in revenue last year. But what had happened was how it got on my radar was back in 2017, Boston Omaha made a purchase for 10 million in them. Uh, and then their stake grew after the IPO in late 2020, grew to 110 million. So they 11X'd it in three years. So it kind of got on my radar. And I had read more about NVR in the past because it was a pretty famous VIC write-up. But then I got digging into it. I read it a bit more. I realized that when they use option contracts on the land and don't actually outright own the land itself, they can get higher inventory turnover, which will lead to higher returns on capital. They also recently just partnered with Boston Omaha's fiber optic company. And they're going to be starting a partnership where the fiber optic company from Boston Omaha is going to be wiring up the houses there. So they all have fiber optic cables in them because a lot of times the home owners buy the houses are shocked when they go to move into their houses and there's no fiber optic internet for them. So it's kind of like a cool deal there. But yeah, I'm kind of in the early works of potentially maybe doing a write-up on it. But mm. yeah, pretty excited about it. You guys are quite into this connection between what's going on with Boston Omaha Group and potentially some companies that they're invested in and that are, sounds like are also publicly listed. Yeah. Since Boston Omaha initially invested in them in 2017, all the way up until their whatever the valuation is now of 110 million, it's IPO'd last year. DFH did. Got it. All right. Moving on. What do you think is the most single most important personality trait that makes a good investor? We'll start with you, Mitch. I guess technically just being rational. That would probably be like the mm -hmm. number one I'd say is being rational and understanding what you don't know. Don't be scared to be like, I don't understand cloud computing and really waste a bunch of time when it's something that you really won't understand. I mean, obviously you can learn up on it, have fun with it. I'm reading up 10Ks on businesses that I'll never invest in, but it's just to learn from. But I'd say that the number one personality trait would just be staying rational. Good answer. How about you, Jake? I remember reading in the Nomad Partnership letters from Nick Sleep. I think it was Bill Miller in there talks about, or he writes up about Bill Miller, I believe it is, talks about how there's like three advantages in investing. There can be like the informational, the analytical, or the behavioral. And he said that the informational tends to be pretty hard to come by because usually it's like insider trading. And then the analytical, sometimes it can happen, but most times you're not probably going to outsmart someone because there's a lot of eyes probably looking at things. But then there's the behavioral thing where no matter how smart you are, if you don't have the behavioral side of things, you probably won't end up being that good at picking stocks for the long run. So I think it's the behavioral yeah. side of things. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's a good point to bring up, right? Is when it comes to analytics, you know, I'm an engineer myself. I'm good with numbers. I'm good at the analytics. It helps me paint a story that I think is important about each company. But at the end of the day, I don't think of it as a huge particularly large edge in the information age when basically efficient market hypothesis would say that everyone already has all that analytics right at their fingertips. And it's getting you know more easy for that analytics and data to be right there available for you, which is a very good pitch on stratosphereinvesting.com. That is where it is so easy to find 10-year financial statements, metrics, ratios, analyst reports, you name it right there for you. You bring up a good point, right? Because that stuff's important and you have to know it and you have to have that 
that in your arsenal and you have to know the numbers. But at the end of the day, it's really going to come down to when March 2020 rolls around again. And it will. I mean, we've seen it might not be a pandemic, but it will always be the next thing that stirs up the market, creates volatility and, and honestly just creates fear. And that's when opportunities arise is when the entire market is selling off. And there's really no confusion around what's happening when the entire market sells off. It's not like an individual holding that's selling off that's creating fear. Like, is there something I don't know? When it's the whole market, it makes it really easy to just say to yourself, how can I act rationally? So I think that's a good answer. All right, Jake, do you want to give us a handoff on your podcast? Yeah. So uh, my uh, Twitter handle is at Bind Hibernate uh, or underscore Bind Hibernate. What about you, Mitch? Yeah. My Twitter handle is Mitch Jensen underscore. You can basically find us at Money Under the Mattress. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We have an Instagram account, Money Under the Mattress. Yep. Yeah. We also do visual just over on YouTube. Beautiful. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Canadian Investor Podcast. We're coming at you with that two episodes per week, Monday mornings, Thursday mornings. We're mixing in interviews and the usual programming with Simon and I talking about investing concepts, individual companies with a Canadian spin, of course. So uh, thanks so much for coming on the show, guys. Appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for having us on. Thank you. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simon may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.